This is a word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. This month marks the third anniversary of George Floyd's murder and the third year of America's so-called racial reckoning. And while the backlash in politics and academia has been strong, some say the fight to tell the true history of America and race is just beginning. Yes, they are difficult stories, but they are filled with extraordinary, visionary, courageous individuals who we carry with us. Teaching the hard history of slavery and racism, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The murder of George Floyd three years ago sparked what has been called the reckoning, a reexamination of how institutional racism has shaped American history and our society today. Well, we all see how that turned out. The backlash began almost immediately with mostly Republican political leaders labeling the accurate teaching of racial history as dangerous and anti-patriotic. Books that acknowledge slavery, segregation, and Jim Crow are being targeted and removed from school libraries. And educators who try to teach about this history are having their jobs and sometimes their very safety threatened. Beyond that, many of the racial reckoning efforts at major institutions have seen their funding and support cut. But one that's still going strong is the Hard Histories Project. At Baltimore's Johns Hopkins University, it's committed to diving into the difficult history of slavery and race around that institution and the surrounding community. The director of that project is Professor Martha Jones. She's a historian and a prolific author of books, including her latest, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. Professor Martha Jones, it is an honor. Welcome to A Word. The honor is mine. Thank you for having me. First off, I love the name, Hard History Project. It just sounds really <laughs> sounds really tough and, and exciting. What does the Hard History Project actually do, and and how does it impact not just Johns Hopkins University, but the surrounding community? So I'll take us back to the place you began, Jason, which was the summer of 2020. Many of us were in our own communities, um, in the streets, um, part of that lifting up of voices around Mr. Floyd's murder, and more broadly, the eternal quest for justice in the United States. But at the same time, at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, we were behind the scenes at work and a project of self-examination um, around the same questions that were animating the streets. We had learned that our founder and namesake, 
Johns Hopkins had not quite been the Quaker abolitionist that we had long held him out to be. What we had discovered was that in the 1840s and 1850s, Mr. Hopkins had been an enslaver, someone who had relied upon the labor of enslaved people in his household. So we understood by way of that discovery that we had some reckoning of our own to do institutionally. And Hard Histories is born out of a commitment to that self-examination, to asking difficult questions about our origins, about where we have been in the long struggle against racism. And so here we are today, um, able to look back not only at our own history, but at the stories we tell about ourselves. Sometimes they are myths, sometimes they are half-truths, sometimes there are silences that substitute for good history, and our work is about filling those gaps and telling new stories. What was the difference between the story that Johns Hopkins had been telling about itself and what you guys started to discover? What was the difference in the stories? Partly, um, we had long, as an institution, told a story about A, having been founded out of the visionary bequest of an individual man, Mr. Hopkins, a man whose past, as we told it, was wholly divorced from the great troubles of 19th century America, including slavery and the rise of Jim Crow. We were founded in 1876, which seemed to put us after enslavement rather than during it, as some institutions clearly were founded in that earlier period. And we had relied to an important degree, not on history, which is to say not on archival research that critically examined the record. We had relied in that story to an important degree on the reminiscences of a Hopkins descendant, someone who was looking to lift up and to burnish Mr. Hopkins's reputation in the 20th century. So we were uh, remarkably, perhaps, but quite frankly, um, there in 2020 for the first time as an institution now going to test some of those reminiscences, test some of those feel-good stories against the historical record, and it turns out they don't wholly match up. I have sort of a personal academic experience with this as well. I went to the University of Virginia, and when I was at school, you know, <laughs> it was literally when you just started having DNA testing, and there were real conversations about Sally Hemings, who was an enslaved woman who had multiple children uh, with Thomas Jefferson against her will, because there's no such thing as a consensual relationship between an enslaved person and the person who owns them. Um, and there was real resistance. I mean, there were there were marches on campus. There were local politicians who were who were angry about these revelations. My question for you is, what was the response like at Johns Hopkins? Because again, just like with Thomas Jefferson at UVA, there are some institutionalists that when they hear a different story about the founder of that school, they don't like hearing it. So, what were what were some of the first reactions you had? 
The UVA story is so important because it is a touchstone for us in 2020 as we embark on our work. By then, UVA is the home to a consortium, a national consortium of colleges and universities called Universities Studying Slavery because this work has become so ubiquitous that we can become a consortium. Um, I think today upwards of 100 institutions have signed on. So we know that story and we understand that there are varied stakeholders in any project like this. There is university leadership, in our case, a leadership that was really ready to step wholly into the story and call for unflinching inquiry into this past. But we have other stakeholders, trustees, benefactors, alums, students. So part of my work in the wake of these immediate revelations in 2020 is to spend time with those communities, to talk with them frankly about what we've discovered. Um, I don't have a way as a historian of shielding us or somehow dressing up a story right, about Mr. Hopkins' relationship to what, in my view, was um, one of this world's great crimes against humanity. We have to face that. And at the same time, we have an opportunity to learn. And so I'm able to teach um, outside of my classroom in all kinds of settings and able to ask us a question institutionally. You know, aren't we strong enough? Don't we have the capacity to not only confront this tough revelation? Um, yes, people are disappointed. They are shaken. They believe that they were inherit the inheritors of something other than what it turns out we are. But aren't we strong enough? Don't we have the capacity? Don't we have the obligation, right? That's the connection back to the summer of 2020. Don't we have the obligation and the opportunity, frankly, um, to turn a corner um, for ourselves institutionally, but I think to be part of, as you suggested at the opening, another moment in our nation's history when we are called um, to do the difficult work because the stakes are not only stakes about the past and understanding the past, the stakes are the stakes for who we might be as a nation going forward. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on teaching hard history about race. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johns, and today we're talking about the Hard Histories Project with Professor Martha Jones. This is a thing, and, and, and again, Slavery is a long time ago. We all have the conversations. No one's still alive from slavery, et cetera, et cetera. But I still think that hearing about the stories of enslaved people can be tough. What were some of the most challenging stories, perhaps not for you, but maybe other people who are stakeholders into your institution? What were some most difficult stories that they had to learn or hear about the lives of enslaved men and women at sort of the genesis of Johns Hopkins? 
I think one of the most difficult things for us has been the stories we cannot tell. We know Mr. Hopkins, for example, as is true for many enslavers in 19th century America. We discover that by virtue of a report to a U.S. census enumerator in 1850 who fills out a so-called slave schedule. In Mr. Hopkins's case, marks four men. They're aged 18 to 55. They're described as B or black. And that's all we know about them. And so part of the challenge is confronting the historical record itself and its disregard for the humanity of enslaved people, the indifference to recording the humanity of enslaved people. In our case, we were able to discover the name of one gentleman who was enslaved by Mr. Hopkins, who we discover no longer enslaved in 1860, living in Baltimore. His name is James Jones. And we're very much in the um, the thick of discovering as much as we can know about Mr. Jones. Um, but that has been exceptional for us. Let me say one more thing. In this work, I was also called to take a closer look at my own family history. And one of the things that finally sunk in for me is that I had had a, uh, a great-grandmother, a great-great-grandmother, and a great-great-great-grandmother, three women in Danville, Kentucky, who were owned by a college president at Center College in Danville. So when you say, as we often hear, slavery is a long time ago, no one who was enslaved is still living among us, we are still here, right? The descendants of people who were enslaved generally, but we are the descendants, some of us, of people who were enslaved by university leaders, by institutions, and more. And so for many of us, I think, as remote in time as these stories can feel, um, they also are um, terribly present. You have a number of students involved in research as well. And I'm always, you know, I think all professors should be this way, but I'm a big believer in involving students in research because even if they don't go on to do this work forever, the skills they learn um, about sort of independence and working through problem solving and everything else like that are really important. What kinds of work are students doing and, and how are they uncovering documents? Are they just are they going to historical archives that you have at Hopkins? Are they going to the National Archives? What are your students doing on the project? I'm so glad you mentioned our students who are really the, the heart of this work. Um, and we were very intentional at Hard Histories about putting students at the center of the work. Yes, because every once in a while I might convince one to become a historian and follow the work over their lifetimes. That would be amazing. Yes, because there are skills that any student going into any field can take away from doing historical research. But for us, the most important thing is that we know that students eventually become the stewards of our institutions. They become alums. Now, they don't believe me when I tell them this in the classroom, but I tell them, you're about to become alums, and you're going to be some of the most influential people on this campus for deciding the trajectory of this institution going forward. When alums talk, leadership listens. So I am here planting seeds 
Um, and I want my students to become future leaders of the institution who understand even the tough parts of the history. So what are they doing? Yes, they are in the archives, working with primary materials, examining materials that have rarely, if ever, have been examined. Um, they are working closely with our essential partners, curators, librarians, archivist from the Maryland State Archives, which are in um, our capital of Annapolis, um, to the university special collections. And so students are hands-on discovering these things in real time. They sometimes think I have a answer book in my desk that I'm not giving up. And I have to remind them that no, there's no answer book in historical research when we do it well, that we are in real time discovering new truths. And they are really not only the engine of the work, but oftentimes they are the moral compass. One of the interesting things about history is oftentimes it's right under people's feet, right? Depending on you know what part of the world they happen to be in. You're in Baltimore. It's the home of Johns Hopkins. It's a majority black city. It's got majority black leadership. You're in a state with a now black governor, right? It's pretty, pretty black through and through. And yet there are still major gaps between what this power structure knows and the actual history of the city. What have reactions been like to this project outside of Hopkins? Like when you talk to community groups, when you talk to local historical societies, you know, who probably had this wonderful image of John Hopkins as like, hey, this is our shining city on the hill. What were their responses? Well, one response I think you alluded to, which is why are we learning this just now? Why has this taken so long? And here, I think there are two ways to understand that. On the one part, I don't think Johns Hopkins as an institution is exceptional in the sense that it has always tried to tell the best stories about itself. That is just a, an institutional disability, if you will. And at the same time, as a historian, what I know is that what we know about the past wholly depends on the questions we ask. And so it is also the case in our work that we are sometimes the very first people to ask a question. If I could give you an example, Mr. Hopkins's gift in the 1870s had three pillars, two you know well. One was a hospital, the other was a university, but the third was an orphan asylum for African-American children. And it is a part of the Hopkins story about which very few people had ever asked a question. So here we are now as historians working in the medical archives, which include the records of the asylum. And yes, we discover things that we had not known as an institution about that place, about the experience of the primarily girls who lived there over many decades. Why? in part because no one had thought to ask the question. Whenever you start doing this kind of work, and nationally, even if this isn't your particular institution, right? Because not everybody is school. Hey, if you went to school in Texas, maybe you don't have this history. If you went to school in Nebraska, maybe you don't have this history. But over the last several years, we have seen in America the sort of backlash to any real discussions of history. What is some of the criticism that you and the Hard Histories Project have received? I think that part of it has been interesting and perhaps surprising that we have received on balance an extraordinary 
level of encouragement and support. And I think, you know, I can't summarize how those kinds of, um, these kinds of interventions are playing out nationally. I can say um, that Baltimore, I believe, is a city that has long been primed to finally engage in self-examination. So what happened, Jason, is we began to not only do our work, but talk about it publicly, we began to hear from other institutions in Baltimore, from museums, from K-12 schools, from historic sites, um, to cultural institutions, all of which were also doing their own version of hard histories work. Now, they reach out to us because they see us as possessing a kind of expertise. We have a world-class history department. Um, I like to think we're very good at what we do. And so part of what has been most rewarding for me is being part of something bigger than Johns Hopkins. And finally, here we are in the wake of 2020, seeing many of our legacy institutions engaged in the self-examination. Now, there are critics because, of course, there are folks and there are institutions in our city and across the country that have long rooted their own esteem in a sense that they are beyond the hard questions or above the hard questions. And we have tried, I hope, with integrity to welcome those folks into our conversations also. And at the same time, um, in our city, but it is not unique to our city, any place in America where you scratch the surface, you are going to discover if it is not the history of slavery, it is the history of settler colonialism. If it is not the history of anti-Black racism, it is the history of anti-Chinese, anti-Latinx racism. You know, So we all have accounting to do, but for me, the balance of it has been um, a tremendous pride in the com- capacity of Baltimore and its folks to really confront this and make this hard history a part of the fabric of who we are too. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about the Hard History Project with Professor Martha Jones. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking with Professor Martha Jones about teaching the hard history of slavery and race in America. Here's the thing. For a lot of African-Americans, this history is now better known, but it's really maddening and infuriating for people to read and hear about it. How do you keep yourself from getting overwhelmed? How do you keep yourself from just being frustrated by digging through this terrible past? And how do you encourage people today to not just say, look, I don't need to hear about this crap because I got enough stuff going on in my present day life? Well, partly... um That reaction, and I have heard it um, just as you describe. Partly my reaction is to remind folks about the power of storytelling and the power of the stories that we tell about ourselves. And we're about to come up on the U.S. at 250 in 2026. There is going to be a whole lot of storytelling. And I think, I hope that the work we do at Hard Histories helps folks who follow us 
be smarter, be more perceptive, have a better critical ear for the stories we tell about the past because they are being mobilized for us and against us in the present. But the other thing that really runs through me is a conversation I had with a group of high school students at our Baltimore School for the Arts, where the sophomore class every year uh, does a production based on the early history of Black Baltimore. And I got to spend a year with them gently consulting on a project. And during rehearsals one afternoon, a student who was playing a figure who's very dear to my heart, a man named George Hackett, um, an activist in Burley, Baltimore, interrupted the rehearsal and said to me, why have you kept this history from us for so long? And what I learned in that afternoon were the ways in which as we told the whole story, and some of the story is hard, but other parts of the story are awe-inspiring. You know, black activists in a city like Baltimore, in the face of slavery, of colonization, anti-black racism, violence, and more, right, shaping the nation's destiny when it comes to a major question like citizenship. That's what we were working on with the students. That for those young people, to know that story was, in a sense, to change everything that came afterward, right? Because our imaginations are also part of what makes the future. And that if we can tell these stories, and yes, they are difficult stories, but they are filled with extraordinary, visionary, courageous individuals who we carry with us. I believe young people carry with them into the futures that they will make. Um, for me, that's the reason to do the work and to be inspired about doing the work, even on a day when someone tells me, as you say, that they've had enough. If we're jumping ahead 100 years, Professor Jones, 150 years, what are you doing in the Hard Histories Project to make sure that this history doesn't get lost again? What are you doing to make sure that, you know, hey, we've got this stuff, we've got to print it on bricks, we've got to print it on archives, we've got it in multiple places. How do you preserve this history so that someone's not having this conversation on, I'm assuming, an AI telepathic podcast uh, in 150 years talking about how they just rediscovered the city of Baltimore and there was this guy named Freddie Gray? How do you, how do you keep this history alive for 150 years? I think... Um I'm a little more humble than perhaps you are about what we do in the sense that I think in every generation we have to teach and we have to reteach. Um, and it will only be more true, won't it, in the future, right, that young people are going to be, you know, awash in knowledge, awash in information, awash in, I don't know, whatever the AI verse is going to produce for us. And so we are, I think, obliged or, and should anticipate, right, that we must teach and teach again in every generation. But your question has come up in the work we're doing in hard histories very pointedly, because when we started, I said to our leadership, well, you know, task me with writing the history of Mr. Hopkins of slavery and racism at the university, and I'll see you in six to 10 years, because that's the way historians work, academic historians work. Well, that wasn't going to be good enough, because there were constituencies who needed to know 
what we were learning, and they needed to know it much more in real time. So we stepped away from academic books and academic articles, though we do some of that, but we have a substack. And in real time, we write about what we discover and make the raw materials available to people. Um, we run a webinar um, where in real time, um, our collaborators, our student researchers and more are there to talk about the work we do. Um, we do live convenings. Next year, we'll do a convening of hard histories in Baltimore um, with practitioners from many corners of the city. Um, so this work has caused us to be much more immediate, much more public. I'm selfishly learning behind the scenes just a bit as I spend time with you because we've been talking about a, a long-form podcast for this work, um, something that's very new for an academic historian like me. But it's to say we understand the power of new media, as we used to call it, um, to not only circulate what we learn um, and what we know, um, but also give it a kind of legacy quality um, that maybe sometimes our academic articles and books really don't have. What you're doing is really impressive because we've seen since this sort of racial reckoning began in 2020 that a lot of money, energy, investment into projects like yours dried up, right? Institutions are like, oh, yeah, we really need to look at this. And then somewhere around late 2021, early 2022, the money dried up, the institutional support dried up, you know, leadership changed at institutions, and suddenly they didn't want to find out about these things anymore. Why do you think Hard Histories has been able to continue when a lot of other similar investigations and research and self-reflection at both commercial, academic, and social institutions have dried up and disappeared? So I think there's there's part of that story, as I mentioned, is about a city, right? A, a place that was really ready to reckon with itself. And we are part of that. But at Hopkins, a decision was made um, to really not put these questions in the hands of a blue ribbon commission um, or to put them in the form of a, a, you know, a glossy report, but to really put the work in the hands of researchers. So I am one researcher at Johns Hopkins who, A, enjoys academic freedom to pursue the questions that I think are germane, that are important, and B, is able to sustain this work because this is the work I was doing before, in a sense, Hard Histories was born, and the work I will do after. So I think putting the work in the hands of researchers who have a true investment, both in terms of the, you know, the scientific questions, but in terms of the our own professional trajectories, our own ethical commitments. I am the descendant of people enslaved by a college president. And that, putting it in my hands, I think, doesn't make it unique, but it has meant that um, my commitment to the work um, is multifold and not subject to or vulnerable to the shifting tides of you know institutional tastes and more. Even at Johns Hopkins, we don't wholly agree about which work to do or how to do the work or even what it means. I think that what we've managed to build is a community of inquiry with a lot of respect that has permitted the work to continue um, collaboratively 
and with remarkable new results all the time. I always like to end the show with either a call to action, a way that people could be supportive, ways that people can do things in their own lives. So I'll, I'll ask you this, Professor Jones. You know, if I'm listening to this podcast now, if somebody wanted to do a hard histories where they're at, what's the first step you would tell them to take? The first step would be is where's the paper? You know, where are the receipts? And likely, even in your corporation, right, there is a curator or a librarian or an archivist, a team that is responsible for the paper, which is where the answers to many of your questions are going to lie. And so we need good partners in the work. And oftentimes, those are the folks who are unsung and unseen, but are the keepers of the records. And so that's who I would want to take to lunch is my librarian or my archivist, first and foremost, to understand what's there and then what we can figure out when we dive into it. Professor Martha Jones is an author, historian, and the director of the Hard Histories Project at Johns Hopkins University. It's been an honor. Thanks so much for joining us today on A Word. Thank you so much, Jason. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is awordatslate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.